We're discussing the impact of technology on society and democracy with two leading members of the House of Lords. Please welcome Lord Tim Clement Jones and Lord David Putnam. David, please tell us about your work in the House of Lords and very briefly about the report that you've just released. Well, the most recent uh, 18 months of my life were spent doing a report on digital, on the impact of digital, digital technology on democracy. Uh, and in a sense, the, the, the clue is in the title because my original intention was to call it the restoration of trust because a lot of it was about misinformation, disinformation. The evidence we took over just under a year from all over the world made it evident the situation was much, much worse, I think, than any of the committee, any of the 12 of us had, uh, had understood. So I ended up calling it the resurrection of trust. And I think that in a sense that the, the switch in those words tells you how profound we decided that the issue was. And then, of course, along comes January the 6th in, 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 in Washington. And a lot of the things that we'd alluded to and things that we regarded as kind of inevitable all, in a sense, came about. So uh, we're feeling pretty a little bit smug at the moment that we kind of hold it right in uh, the end of June last year. Our second guest today is Lord Tim Clement Jones. This is his third time back on CXO Talk. And Tim, welcome back. It's great to see you again. Great to be back, Michael. And uh, as you know, my interest uh, is uh, very heavily in the area of artificial intelligence. But um, I have this crossover with David. David was not only on my original committee, but artificial intelligence is you know, right at the heart of these digital platforms. And, you know, I speak on digital issues in the House of Lords and uh, it, they are absolutely crucial. And the whole area of online harms to some quite high degree is driven by the algorithms at the heart of these digital platforms. So I'm sure we're going to unpack that later on today. And so David and I do work very closely together in trying to make sure we get the right regulatory solutions uh, within uh, the UK context. And very briefly, Tim, just tell us for our, our US audience about the House of Lords. It is uh, a revising chamber, but it's also a chamber which has the kind of expertise because it can, you know, it contains people who are maybe uh, uh, in the end of their pol political careers, if you like, with a small p, but have a big expertise, a great interest in a number of areas that they've worked on for years or all their lives sometimes. And so we can draw on uh, real experience and understanding of some of these issues. So we call ourselves a revising chamber, but actually uh, I think we should really call ourselves an expert chamber because we examine legislation, we look at future regulation much more closely than the House of Commons. And I, I think in many ways, actually, government does treat us as a resource and they certainly treat our reports with considerable respect. David, tell us about the core issues that your report covered. And Tim, please jump in. I think Tim, in a sense, set it up quite nicely. We were looking at the potential danger to democracy of misinformation, disinformation, and the degree to which the duty of care was being exercised by the major platforms, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, in, in, in understanding what their role was in a new 21st century democracy. 
uh, the, the, both looking at the positive role they could play in terms of, of, of information, uh, generating information and checking information, but also the negative in terms of the, the amplification of disinformation. And that's an issue we looked at very carefully. And this is where, Tim, my interests absolutely coincide, because within those black boxes, uh, within those algorithmic structures, is where the problem lies. And the problem essentially lies, is a bit, maybe this will spark people a, a little, I think, is that these are flawed business models. That the business model that drives uh, Facebook, Google, and others is, in the end, an advertising-related uh, business model. That requires volume. That requires hits, and the and, and what they, their, their income is generated on the back of hits. And one of the things we tried to unpick, Michael, which was I think pretty important, was we, we took the position that it's about it's about reach, not about freedom of speech, and that we felt that a lot of the freedom of speech advocates were misunderstanding the problem here, and that the real problem was the amplification of misinformation, which in turn benefited or um, um, was an enormous boost to the revenues of those platforms. And that's the problem. They, they, we, we are convinced, and the evidence made it evident, that we're convinced that they could alter their algorithms, that they can actually dial down and, and solve many, many of the problems that we perceive, but actually it's not in their business interest to. So they're trapped in a sense between demands or requirements of their shareholders to optimize that, to optimize share, share value, and the role of responsibility they have as massive information platforms within a democracy. Of course, governments have been extremely reluctant, in a sense, to come up against uh, big tech in that sense. I mean, we've seen that in the competition area over the advertising monopoly that uh, uh, the big platforms have, you know. Uh, uh, but I think many of us are now much more sensitive to this whole aspect of data uh, behavioral data in particular. I think Shoshana Zuboff did us all a, a huge uh, uh, benefit by uh, uh, really getting into detail on that, what she calls uh, exhaust data in a sense that, you know, it may seem trivial to many of us, but actually uh, the use to which it's put in terms of targeting messages, targeting advertising, and in a sense helping drive those algorithms, I, I think is absolutely crucial. And we're only just beginning to come to grips with that. Um, you know, uh, 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 of course, I mean, David and I are both, uh, we're both, uh, if you like, tech enthusiasts, but you absolutely have to make sure that we uh, uh, have a handle on this and that we're not uh, uh, giving way to unintended consequences. What is the deep importance of this set of issues that you spent so much time and energy preparing that report? If you value it, certainly I do, and I'm sure we, we all do, value the, the, the sort of democracy we were born and brought up in, uh, that's a, that for me, it's rather like carrying a porcelain bowl across a very slippery floor. We, we should be looking after it. I did a TED talk in 2012, uh, coincidentally actually, entitled The Duty of Care, where I made the point that we, 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 we use the concept of duty of care with many, many things in the medical sense, in the educational sense, but actually we haven't applied it to democracy. And democracy of all the things that we value may, be in, may end up looking like the most fragile. And so our, our tolerance, if you like, of the growth of the, these major platforms, our encouragement of the, of the reach because of the, of the benefits of, of information has kind of blindsided us to what was also happening at the same time. 
which was, you know, someone described the platforms as outrage factories. I think so. Uh, I'm not sure anyone's come up with a better description. We've actually actively encouraged outrage instead of intelligent debate and, and the fact that, you know, the whole essence of democracy is compromised. What these platforms do not do is, in, is encourage intelligent debate and, re, and reflect the atmosphere of compromise that any democracy requires in order to be successful. The problem is that, you know, the culture has been to date against us really having a handle on that. And uh, I think it's only now. And I and I think that, you know, it's very interesting to see what the Biden administration is doing, too, uh, particularly in the competition area. But, you know, one of the, the, the real barriers, I think, is thinking of these things in only individual harms. I think we're now getting to the point where maybe if somebody's affected by hate speech or, uh, uh, you know, racial slurs or whatever as individuals, then I think we're beginning to, you know, governments are beginning to accept that that kind of individual harm is, you know, uh, uh, something that we need to regulate and make sure that the platforms deal with. But I think that the area that David is raising, which is so important, and there is still resistance in governments where it's, if you like, societal harms uh, that are being caused by the platforms. Now, this is, you know, difficult to define, uh, but the consequences, you know, could be severe uh, if we don't get it right. And I think, you know, across the world, uh, you know, you only have to look at uh, Myanmar, uh, for instance, with the Rohingyas. I mean, if that wasn't societal harm uh, in in terms of use by the military of Facebook, uh, then I don't know what is. But there are others. I mean, you could, uh, uh, you know, David's used the analogy of January the 6th, for instance. There are, you know, analogies and there are examples across the world um, where your know, democracy is at risk because of the way uh, that these platforms operate. And, you know, we have to get to grips with that. It may be hard, um, uh, but we have to get to grips with it. How do you get to grips with a topic that by its nature is relatively vague and unfocused? Because unlike a, uh, individual harms, when you talk about societal harm, you're talking about very diffuse and broad impacts. Well, Michael, I mean, I sit on the Labour benches at the House of Lords and probably unsurprisingly, I'm, quite a, I'm a Louis Brandeis fan. So I think the most interesting thing that's taking place at the moment is people begin to look back to the early part of the uh, 20th century uh, and the, the railroads, the breaking up the railroads, and understanding why that had to happen. It wasn't just about the railroads. It was about the railroads' ability to block and, 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 and distort all sorts of other markets. The obvious one was uh, at the time the coal market, but, the, but others. And then, and then indeed it blocked. And, and make extraordinary advance on, on the nature of shipping. So what I think legislators are working up to is this isn't just about platforms. This is actually about the way we operate uh, in, in, as a society and that the influence of these platforms is colossal. But most important of all, the, the fact that what we have allowed to develop is a business model which acts inexorably against our, our society's best interest. That is to say, it inflames, it inflames fringe views, it inflames misinformation, and it actually not that not inflames it, it then profits from that inflammation. That can't be right. And of course, it is it is really quite opaque because if you look at this, uh, the consumer 
uh, is getting a free ride, aren't they? Because of the advertising, it's, it's being redirected back to them, but it's their data, which is, you know, part of the whole business model, as, as David has described. So it, it's very difficult sometimes for regulators to say, ah, there's kind of consumer detriment or whatever it may be. That's why you also need to look at the societal aspects of this. Uh, if you purely look at in conventional terms, um, at uh, consumer harm, then you'd actually uh, uh, probably miss uh, the issues altogether, you know, because these things like, uh, if you like, advertising monopoly, uh, use of data without consent and so on, um, and misinformation, disinformation, it is quite difficult uh, without looking at the bigger societal picture uh, just to pin down and say, ah, oh, well, there's a consumer detriment. We must intervene uh, on competition grounds. And that's why, in a sense, we're all now beginning to rewrite uh, the rules um, uh, so that we do uh, catch these harms. I have a very interesting point from Simone Joe Moore on LinkedIn, who's asking, how do you strike this balance between intelligent questioning and debate versus trolling on social media? And how, do, how, how should lawmakers and policymakers deal with this kind of issue? that we came up, we identified an interesting area of, uh, if you like, compromise, for want of a better word. We, we say we looked hard at the impact of reach. Now, Facebook, if you are a, a, a reasonably popular person on Facebook, you can quite quickly have 5,000 people follow, follow your, uh, what, what you're saying. At that, that point, you get a tick. So it's clear to us that the algorithm is able to identify you as, as it were a super spreader at that point. And what we're saying is at that moment, not only you've got your tick, but you then have to validate and verify what it is you're saying. So that's that spate of outrage, if you like, is blocked at 5,000 and then has to be explained and justified. And that seemed to us an interesting area to begin to explore. Is 5,000 the right number? I don't know. But what was evident to us is these are the, the things that Tim really understands extremely well. These algorithmic systems inside that black box can be adjusted to ensure that at certain moment validation takes place, and we of course we saw it happen in your, your own election that, uh, that that in the end warnings were put up. Now you have to ask yourself why wasn't that done much 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 sooner? Because why? Because we only very reasonably recently became aware of the depth of the problem. In a sense, the, the you know the whole Russian uh, debacle in, in the U.S. in the 2016 uh, election was it kind of got us off on the wrong track. We were looking at the wrong place. Uh, it wasn't what Russia had done. It was what Russia was able to take advantage of. That was going to be the issue. And it took us a long time to get there. And that's why, in a sense, you need new ways of thinking about this. It's the virality of a message, uh, exactly as David has talked about, the super spreader. And I like the expression used by Avaz uh, in their uh, report that came out last year, looking at the, if you like, the anti-vax messages and the disinformation um, over the internet um, uh, during the COVID pandemic. And they talked about detoxing the algorithm. And I think that's really important. So in, in a sense, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's possible to lay down uh, absolutely hard and fast rules. I think, you know, the that's the benefit of the duty of care, uh, that uh, it, it is a blanket uh, legal uh, uh, concept, which has a code of practice, 
uh, which is uh, effectively enforced by a regulator, but it means that the it's up to the platform to get it right in the first place. And then, of course, and David's report talked about it, you need forms of redress. You need a kind of ombudsman or whatever may be the case, independent of the platforms, who can say they got it wrong, they allowed this uh, uh, these messages to impact on you, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there are... There are mechanisms that that can be adopted, but it at the heart of it, as David said, is this black box algorithm that we really need to get to grips with. You've both used terms that are very interesting put together, it seems to me. One, uh, Tim, you were just talking about duty of care. And David, you've raised several times this notion of flawed business models. How do these two, duty of care and the business model, intersect? And it seems like they're kind of diametrically opposed. It depends on your concept of what society might be, Michael. Uh, in my, the type of society I spent my life arguing for, they're not opposed at all. They're all of a piece uh, because that society would have uh, a combination of regulation, but also personal responsibility on the part of the people who run businesses. And one of the things that I think Tim and I are going to be arguing for, which we might have problems in the UK, is the notion of personal responsibility. At what point do the people sit on the board of Facebook have a personal responsibility for the degree to which they exercise duty of care over the malfunction of their, of their algorithmic systems? I don't see a conflict either, uh, uh, Michael. I think that you may see... Uh, different regulators involved. You know, you may see, for instance, a regulator uh, uh, imposing uh, 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 a way of working over content, user-generated content uh, on a platform, and you may see another regulator, more specialist, for instance, um, uh, uh, on uh, competition. You know, so I I think it is going to be horses for courses, but, you know, I think that's the important thing to make sure that they cooperate. I just wanted to say that I do think that often people in this context raise the question of freedom of expression. And I expect that people will come on uh, 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 the the chat and and want to raise that issue. But again, I don't see a conflict um, uh, in this area because, you know, we're not talking about, you know, ordinary discourse. We're talking about extreme messages, uh, anti-vaxxing, you know, incitement to violence and so on and so forth. So, um, uh, you know, the one thing David and I absolutely don't want to do is to impede freedom of expression. But, you know, uh, that's sometimes used uh, certainly by the platforms as a way of resisting regulation. And we have to avoid that. We have another question coming now from Twitter from Arsalan Khan who raises another dimension, and he's talking about the uh, if individual countries create their own policies on societal harm, how do you handle the cross-border issues? It seems like that's another really tricky one here. I think what is happening, and it's a quite determined effort, I think, on behalf of the Biden administration, the UK, and and actually Europe, the EU is probably further advanced than anybody else on this, is to align uh, our regulatory frameworks. And I think that will happen. Now, once in a sense, these are big marketplaces, and the Australian situation with Facebook has stimulated this. Once you get these major markets aligned, it's extremely hard to see how Facebook, Google, and the rest of them could 
continue with their, their advertising, their, their, their current model. They would have to adjust to what those marketplaces required. Bear in mind, what troubles me a lot, Michael, is that, look, think back, Mr. Putin and, and, and President Xi must be laughing their heads off at the mess we put ourselves into because they've got their own solution to this problem. Very, very a lovely, simple solution. We've got our knickers in a twist in an extraordinary situation, quite unintended in, in many respects. So it is the obligation is on the Western, the great Western democracies to align to align the, the regulatory frameworks and and work together. This can't be done on a country by country basis. And I think once the platforms see the writing on the wall, in a sense, Michael, I think they will want to encourage people to do that. I mean, as you know, I've been heavily involved in um, the AI ethics agenda, and that is coming together on an international basis. This, if anything, is more immediate and the pressures are much greater. Um, and I, I think it's it's bound to, to come together. Um, uh, uh, it's interesting that, you know, uh, we've already had a lot of interest in the duty of care from uh, uh, other countries. Uh, you know, the UK, in a sense, is a bit of a front runner in this, despite the fact that David and I are both rather impatient. We feel that it hasn't moved fast enough. But nevertheless, even so, by international standards, we are uh, uh, a little bit ahead of the game. And, you know, there's a lot of interest. And I think once we go forward and we start defining and putting it in regulation, that's going to be a quite a useful template for people to be able to uh, legislate. Michael, worth mentioning that it's interesting how things bubble up and then become accepted. When the notion of, of fines of up to 10% of turnover were first mooted, people said, what? What? Now that's regarded as a sort of probably kind of a standard around which people begin to gather. So there is a momentum. Tim's absolutely right. There is a momentum here. And the momentum is pretty fierce. You know, 10% of turnover is a big fine. If you're sitting on a board, you've got to think several times before you uh, glibly sign off on that. That's not just the cost of doing business. So is the core issue then the self-interest of platforms versus the public good? Yes, essentially it is. As I say, if you look, look back and look at the, the, the big antitrust decisions were made uh, in the first, uh, the first decade of the, of the 20th century, I think it's uh, we're at a similar moment. And incidentally, I think that it is as certain that these things will be resolved in the next, uh, within the next 10 years in a very similar manner. So it's really up to, I think it's going to be up to the platform. Do they want to be broken up? Do they want to be fined? Or do they want to get real and join society? Yeah, I mean, you know, I could get on uh, 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 to the uh, really and, and really bore everybody with uh, the different forms of remedies available to our competition regulators. But, you know, uh, David talked about big oil, which was broken up by what are called structural remedies. Now, it may well be that in the future, regulators, because of the power of the tech platforms, are going to have to think about exactly doing that, uh, say, separating Facebook um, uh, from YouTube or uh, from Instagram or, you know, things of that sort. It's, you know, the, uh, we're now out of the era of move fast and break things. You know, we've, we, we now are uh, expecting a level of corporate responsibility from these platforms because of the power they wield. And I think, you know, we have to think um, uh, uh, quite big in terms of how we're going to regulate. have uh, another comment from... Twitter, again, from Arsalan Khan, and he's 
talking about, about do we need a new world order that requires technology platforms to be built in? I mean, it seems like as long as you've you've got this private sector set of incentives versus the public good, then you're you're going to be at loggerheads and and in a practical way, what are the what are the solutions, the remedies, as you were just starting to describe? What are governments for? Arslan always asks the most wonderful questions, by the way, um, uh, but uh, it, it, as he did last time. But, you know, what are governments for? That is what, uh, you know, the role of government is. It is, in a sense, uh, uh, a broker. It's got to understand what is for the benefit of, uh, if you like, society as a whole. Um, uh, uh, and on the other hand, what are the freedoms that absolutely need preserving and guaranteeing and so on? And I would say that we're, you know, we have some really difficult decisions uh, to make in this area. But uh, David and I come from the point of view of actually creating more freedom because, you know, the, the impact of the platforms in many, many ways will be to reduce our freedoms if we don't do something about it. It's very, very much so. And that's why I would argue, instead, Michael, that the Facebook reaction or response in Australia was so incredibly clumsy, because what it did is it begged a question they could really have done without, which is, are they more powerful than sovereign nations? Now, you can't go there, because you get the G7 together, the G20 together, you know, you're not going to get into a situation where any prime minister is going to concede that actually, I'm afraid there's nothing we can do about these guys. They're bigger than us. We just have to live with it. That's not going to happen. The only problem there was the subtext that the legislation was prompted by one of the biggest media organizations in the world. And so in a sense, you know, I'm not I, I felt pretty uncomfortable taking sides there. Well, I think it was just an encouragement to create a new series of an already long running TV series. Uh, <laughs> no, you're absolutely, but that, I have to put that down to an extraordinary irony of history. But the truth is, you don't take on nations. And I think companies, and many have, some of the old companies have, have genuinely believed that they were bigger. Uh, and, and But I I would say don't go there. And if, frankly, if I was a shareholder in, in Facebook, I'm not, I'd have been very, very, very cross with whoever made that decision. It was stupid. Where is all of this going? We're still heavily engaged in, you know, trying to get the legislation right in the UK. But, um, you know, we, David and I believe that our role is to kind of keep government honest and on track and actually go further than they've pledged because you know this question of individual harm uh, uh remedies for that uh, and and a duty of care in relation to individual harm isn't enough it's got to go broader into societal harm but you know we've got we've got a road to travel we've got draft legislation coming in very very soon uh this spring we've got then legislation later on in the year but actually getting it right is is going to require a huge amount of concentration and also you know we're going to have to fight off uh uh objections on the basis of freedom of expression and so on and so forth and we are going to have to root our uh determination in principle basically and i think there's a great deal of, of support out there um particularly in terms of protection of of young people and things of that sort um that we're absolutely you know determined to see happens is there the political will, do you think, to follow through with these kinds of changes you're describing? In the interest of a vibrant democracy, when any prime minister or president of any country looks at the options, I don't think they're facing many 
you know, many alternatives. I can't really imagine Macron or or, uh, or or Johnson or anybody else looking at the options available. They may find those options quite uncomfortable in uh, And the ability of some of these platforms to embarrass politicians is considerable. But when they actually look at the options, I'm not sure they're faced with, uh, with that many uh, alternatives other than pressing down the road that uh, Tim just laid out for you. I think the, the real Achilles heel, though, uh, that David's uh, report uh, 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 pointed out really clearly, and the government failed to answer satisfactorily, was the whole question of electoral uh, um, uh, regulation, basically. The use of uh, misleading political messaging during elections, uh, the impact, um, uh, you know, of, if you like, opaque um, political messaging where it's not obvious where it's coming from, uh, those sorts of things. I think the determination of governments is often, especially because they are in control and they are benefiting from some of that messaging, there's a great reluctance to take on the platforms in those circumstances. And, you know, most platforms, you know, are, are, are pretty reluctant to uh, take down any form of political advertising or messaging. So, you know, or, or in a sense, moderate political content. So uh, that's for me is is the bit that I think is going to be the uh, agenda that we'll probably be fighting on for the next 10 years. Michael, it's quite interesting that uh, both of the major parties, not Tim's party, actually behave very well. Both of the major parties actually uh, misled us. I was going to say lied to us, but they misled us in, their, in the evidence they gave about their use of the of the digital environment during an election, which was really lamentable. I mean, they we, we caught them out, but uh, the fact that in both cases they felt that they needed to necessarily break the law to give themselves an edge is a very worrying uh, indicator of what we might be up against here. I mean, the trouble is, political parties love data because you know targeted messages, micro targeting, as it's called, is very powerful potentially in. Uh, uh, gaining support, and you know, it is—it's like a drug. It's very difficult to wean um, politicians off what they see as a new, exciting tool um, to gain support. I work with various um, software companies, you know, major software companies, and personalization based on data is such a major focus of technology of every aspect of technology with tentacles to invade our lives. When done well, it's intuitive and it's helpful. But you're talking about the often indistinguishable case where it's done in invasively to, and in, insinuating itself into the pattern of our lives. I mean, it seems, I don't, how, do you, how do you even start to grapple with that? Well, it, it, it kind of bubbled up in the Cambridge Analytica case, where the, the guy who ran the country was stupid enough to uh, to boast about what they were able to do. And uh, what it's illustrated is that that was the tip of a, of a very, very worrying uh, nightmare for all of us. Um, no, I mean, the, this is where you come back to individual responsibility. I mean, the idea that um, the, 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 the people, the management of Facebook, the management of Google, are not appalled by that possibility and aren't doing everything they can to, to prevent it. I think it's what uh, gives everyone at Twitter nightmares. Uh, I don't think they ever intended or wanted to have the power they have in these, in these sort of fringe areas, but they're stuck with them. So the answer is how do they work with government to make sure they're minimized? This 
Michael, brings in, you know, one of David and my favourite subjects, which is digital literacy. You know, I mean, I'm an avid reader of people who um, try and buck the trend. I love Jaron Lanier's book, 10 Reasons for Deleting Your Facebook Account. I love the book by Clarissa Bailey's called uh, 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 Privacy is Power. You know, and basically that kind of understanding of what you are doing when you sign up to a platform platform, when you give your data away, when you uh, don't look at the terms and conditions, you tick the boxes, you accept all cookies, you know, all these sorts of things. It's really important that people understand the consequences of that. And, I, I, you know, I think it's only a tiny minority who um, uh, have, a, have this kind of idea they might possibly live off grid. You know, none of us can really do that. So we have to make sure that when we uh, uh, live with it, we are, you know, not giving away our data in those circumstances. So, uh, you know, and I don't practice what I preach half the time, you know, you be, we're all in a hurry. We all want to uh, have a look at what's on that website. We hit the hit the accept all cookies button or whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, we go through now that is, you know, we've got to be more considered about how we do these things. There's a bit, there is a, a huge job. Chapter seven of our report is all about digital literacy. We went into it in great depth. And again, fairly lamentable failure by most Western democracies to address this. You, there are exceptions. There's wonderful uh, Estonia is a terrific exception. Finland, but why are the exceptions? They're exceptions because they understand the danger. Estonia sits, they are right on the edge of, with, with its vast neighbor, Russia, with 20% of its population being Russian. It can't afford misinformation. Misinformation for them is catastrophe. So necessarily, they make sure their young people are really educated in what in the way in which they receive information, how they check facts and everything else. We are very complacent in the West, I've got to say. I mean, I'll say this about the United States. We're unbelievably complacent uh, in those areas. And we're going to have to get smart. We're going to make sure that young people get extremely smart about the way they're fed and react and respond to information. Absolutely. And, you know, our politics, you know, right across the West uh, demonstrate that, um, you know, there's an awful lot of misinformation, which is believed, you know, believed as the gospel, effectively. I have a, another question from Twitter. Uh, how do you balance social media reach versus genuine freedom of speech? I hope I thought I'd answer it. And obviously I, I didn't. Is that you accept the fact that freedom of speech requires that people can, can say, if you like, what they want. But at a certain moment, and this we're back to the black boxes, that at a certain moment, the, inter, the box intervenes and says, whoa, just a minute, there is no truth in what you're saying. Or worse, on the case of anti-vaxxers, there is actual harm and damage in what you're saying. We're not going to give you reach. So what you do is you limit reach until the person making those statements can validate them or affirm them or find some other way of, uh, of, as it were, allowing being allowed to amplify. It's all about ampl amplification. It's it's trying to to stop the amp stop the amplification of distortion and lies and and really quite dangerous stuff like the anti-vax. You know, so we've got a perfect trial run really with anti-vaxing. We can't get this right. We can't get much right. There are so many ways. I mean, uh, you know, when people say, oh, how do we do this? I mean, you know, you've got sites like Reddit who have a community, uh, different communities. You have rules applying to the communities that have to, for, you know, conform to a particular standard. Um, then you've got the Avaz um, 
not only detoxing the algorithm, but the duty of correction. And then you've got great organizations like NewsGuard, who basically, in a sense, have a, a, a sort of star um, system, basically, to verify some of the accuracy of, of news uh, outlet. So, uh, you know, we do have the tools, but we just have to be a bit determined about how we use them. We have another question from Twitter that I think addresses or asks about this point, which is how can government set effective constraints when partisan politics benefits from misusing digital technologies and even spreading misinformation? Tim laid out for you early on what, why the House of Lords existed. This is where it actually gets quite interesting. We, both Tim and I, during our careers in the Lords, which both go back, I think, 25 years, had managed to get amendments into legislation against the head. That's to say, that didn't suit either the government of the day or even the leaders of the opposition of the day. That's that The independence of the House of Lords is wonderfully, wonderfully valuable, and it is expert, and it does listen. I mean, just a, a tiny example. Someone said to me the other day, well, David, why were you not why are you surprised that you do, your report didn't get more traction? It's 77,000 words long. Say, so, yeah, it's 77,000 words long because it's a bloody complicated subject and we had the time and the luxury to do it properly. So I, do, I'm, I, I don't think uh, that would necessarily prove to be the, the stumbling block. We have enough, the theatre of embarrassment, the quality of the House of Lords and the ability to to generate uh, public opinion, if you like, around good, sane, sensible solutions is it still does still does function within a democracy. If you go down the road that Tim was just saying, if you allow the platforms to do to go in the route they appear to have taken, we'll be dealing with autocracy, not democracy. Then you've got a different set of problems. David, so right. I mean, the power of persuasion still survives uh, in the House of Lords. And because the government doesn't have a majority, we can get things done if that power of persuasion is effective. You know, uh, it, it, we, we've done that quite a few times over the last 25 years, as David says, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, and ministers know that. They know that if you, you know, uh, espouse a particular cause, uh, that is clearly uh, sensible, that they're going to uh, find that there are a pretty sticky wicket or um, whatever the appropriate baseball analogy would be, Michael, um, in those circumstances. But, it, you know, that we, we, we have had some notable successes in that respect. I mean, for instance, only a few years ago, uh, we had a new code um, uh, uh, for um, age-appropriate design, which means that uh, uh, web pages now need to take account of the age of the individuals actually accessing them. It's now called the Children's Code. It came into effect last year, and it's a major uh, addition to our regulation. Um, and it was quite, you know, heavily resisted by the by the platforms and others uh, when it came in, but by you know, a single uh, uh, a colleague of David and mine, supported by us, she, you know, uh, drove it through to greatly to her credit. And we have two questions now, one on LinkedIn and one on Twitter that relate to the same topic. And that is the speed of government, the, the, the speed of change and government's ability to keep up uh, so on Twitter, for example, future wars are going to be cyber and the government is just catching up. 
And the technology is changing so rapidly that it's very difficult for the legal system to track that. And so how do we manage that aspect? See, funny enough, government think that, you know, they, they their first thought is about cybersecurity. Their first thought is about their uh, uh, cyber, basically, their data. We've got a new, brand new National Cybersecurity Center about a year or two old now. Um, and uh, the truth is, uh, particularly in view of uh, Russian activities, we now have, uh, you know, quite good cyber uh, controls. I'm not sure that our risk management is fantastic, but operationally, uh, we are pretty good at this. And, you know, for instance, things like the solar winds hack um, of last year um, has been looked at pretty carefully. We don't know what the outcome is, but it's been looked at pretty carefully by our National Cyber Security Centre. So strangely enough, the criticism I have of government is if only they thought of our data in the way that they thought about their data, we'd all be in a much happier place, quite honestly. I think that's true. I also think, uh, Michael, I don't think you, you, whether this is absolutely true in the US because it's such a vast country, but my experience of legislation is it can be moved very quickly when there's an incident. Now, by an incident, I'll give you an example. I was at the Department of Education at the moment where a baby was allowed to die under very unfortunate, catastrophic uh, failure by a different system of the government. The entire department ground to a halt for about two months whilst this was looked at and whilst the government, whilst the department tried to explain itself and any amount of legislation was brought forward. So governments dealing crises and the world, this is going to be a series of crises. And the other thing governments don't like is judicial review. And I think we're looking at an area here where judicial review, either by the platforms for a government decision or by civil society because of a government decision, is utterly inevitable. So I actually think long term, longer term, these big issues are going to be decided in the courts. As we finish up, can I ask you each for advice to several different groups? First is the advice that you have for governments and for policymakers. Look seriously at societal harms. I, I, I think the duty of care is not enough just simply uh, to protect individual citizens. Um, it is all about looking at the wider picture, because if you don't, then you're going to find it's too late and uh you know your own democracy is going to um, suffer uh and i think you know you're right michael in a sense that um some politicians appear to have a conflict of interest on this you know if you're in control uh you know you don't think of what it's like to have the opposition but uh to be in opposition but nevertheless that's what they have to think about i was very impressed indeed tuning into some of the um is it judicial subcommittee, uh, congressional hearings um, on the platforms? I thought that uh, the chairman, Sotelion, uh, did extremely well. There is a lot of expertise. You've got more expertise, actually, Michael, uh, in your country than we have in ours. Listen to the experts, understand the ramifications, and for God's sake, politicians have got to understand that it is in their interest, all of their interests, irrespective of the Republicans and Democrats, to get this right. Because getting it wrong means you are inviting the possibility of a form of government that very, very, very few people in the United States wish to even contemplate. What about advice to business people, to the platform owners, for example? Well, we had, a, we had an interesting spate, didn't we, where a lot of advertisers started to take, take, take issue with Facebook, and that kind of faded away. 
But I would have thought that, again, it's a question of, uh, of regulatory uh, oversight uh, and businesses under understanding. What, how many businesses in the U.S. want to see democracy crumble? I mean, I was quite interested in the immediately after the January 6th thing, the way that businesses walked away from, not so much the Republican Party, but away from Trump. Uh, I just think it's we've got to kind of begin to hold up a mirror to ourselves and, and also look carefully at what the ramifications of getting it wrong are. And I don't think there's a single business in the US, or if there are, there's very, very few, who wish to go down that road. And they've got to realize that that means they've got to act, not, not just react. And I think, you know, this is a board issue. I mean, this is the really important factor. I mean, looking on the other side, not the platform side, because I think they're only too well aware of what they need to do. But if I'm on the other side, I'm, if you like, somebody who is using social media uh, as a board member, you have to understand the technology and you have to, uh, you know, take the time to do that. The advertising industry, really interestingly, as David said, they're developing all kinds of uh, new technology uh, solutions like blockchain um, to actually track where their uh, advertising messages are going. And if they're directed in the wrong way, they find out and there's an accountability down the blockchain uh, which is, is, you know, really, um, really smart in the in the in the true sense of the word. So, you know, it's using technology to understand technology, which I think you can't leave it to the chief information officer or the chief technology officer. You, as the CEO or the chair, you have to understand it. Tim's one hundred percent right. You know, I've sat on a lot of boards in my life. If you really want to grab a board's attention, I'm not saying which part of your the body you want to grab. If you want to grab their attention, start looking at the risk register and then have a conversation about the, how adequate director's insurance is. It's a very lively discussion. <laughs> I, I think this whole issue of personal responsibility, the things that insurance companies will and won't take on uh, in terms of protecting companies and boards, that's where a, a lot of this could land. And very interestingly. And let's finish up by uh, any thoughts on the role of education and advice that you may have for educators in helping prepare our citizens to deal with these issues? I think, I've, funnily enough, I've just developed with a group of people a framework for ethical AI um, for use in education, and we're going to be launching that uh, in March. But uh, the equivalent is needed in many ways, because, it, of course, digital um, literacy, digital education is incredibly important. But actually, parents and teachers, this isn't just a generation, a younger generational issue. It, it, it needs to go all the way through. And I, I think we need to actually be much more proactive about the tools that are out there for parents and, and others, uh, you know, even uh, main board directors. You know, I mean, it, 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 you cannot spend enough time talking about the issues. And that's why when David mentioned Cambridge Analytica, suddenly everybody gets interested, you know, but it's a very rare example of suddenly um, people becoming sensitized to an issue that they previously didn't really think about. You know, I call the parallel really, in a sense, is climate change. I mean, there are issues. If we're going to prepare our kids, I've got grand three granddaughters, if we're going to prepare them properly for the remainder of their lives, um, we have an absolute obligation to, to explain to them what the challenges they're likely to face are, what forms of society they're going to have to rally around, what sort of governance they should reasonably expect, and how they'll participate in all of that. 
if they're left in ignorance, be it on climate change or frankly on all the issues we're describing, describing, describing and discussing this evening, we are making them incredibly vulnerable to a, a form of challenge and a form of life that uh, we've lived very privileged lives. I think that the lives of our grandchildren, unless we get this right for them and help them, will be very diminished. And I use that word a lot recently. They will live diminished lives and they'll blame us and they'll wonder why it ever happened. Well, certainly one of the key themes that I've picked up from both of you during this conversation has been this idea of responsibility, individual responsibility for the, the public welfare. Unquestionably, it's summed up in the, in the phrase duty of care. We have an absolute overwhelming duty of care for future generations, and it applies as much to the digital uh, environment as it does to climate. Absolutely. And, you know, in a way, what we're now having to overturn is this whole idea is that online was somehow completely different to offline, to the physical world. Well, you know, some of us have been living in the uh, online remote world for the whole of last year. But why should standards be different in that online world? They shouldn't be. We, we should expect the same standards of behavior and we should expect people to be accountable for that in the same way as they are in the offline world. Okay, well, what a very interesting conversation. I would like to express my deep thank you to Lord Tim Clement, Clement Jones and Lord David Putnam for joining us today. And David, before we go, I just have to ask you, behind you and around you are a bunch of photographs and awards that seem distant from your role in the House of Lords. Would you tell us about a little bit more about your background very quickly? Yes, I was a filmmaker for many, many years. That's an Emmy sitting behind me. And the reason the Emmy is sitting there is the shelf isn't deep enough to take it. Um, but I've got my Oscar up there. I've got uh, four or five Golden Globes and uh, three, four BAFTAs, uh, David and Donatello's, and a, car, and a Palm Door from Cannes. Now, I had a very, very happy, wonderfully happy 30 years in the movie industry. And, uh, and, and I've had a wonderful 25 years working with Tim in the legislature. So I've had a, I'm the kind of lucky guy, really. And we're very lucky that you're willing to take the time to speak with us. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. Before you go, don't forget, subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website and tell your friends as well. We have amazing shows coming up. Check out CXOTalk.com and we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.